The chaos that erupted at Woodward's Pavilion was pretty much entirely the fault of one man. That man was named Dick Sullivan. Spectators gathered for a highly anticipated boxing match and retreated to 20 rounds of intense fighting. Sullivan was the referee for the match, but during the 20th round, he made a decision that basically pitted him against all the spectators. One of those spectators was Alex Gregans. Well, he was more of a promoter than a spectator, but he was still watching the match, and he was so mad that he rushed the boxing rink and flung himself on top of Sullivan. Barbados Joe Walcott was one of the fighters in the rink, and he was so mad that he punched Sullivan in the head. Before things could get worse, Sullivan managed to escape by barrel rolling out of the ring, running through the crowd, out the doors, and into the night. The whole thing was chronicled the next day in the papers, and that account is the most detailed description we have of Dick Sullivan. This match on April 29, 1904, is one of five fights he was known to have officiated. But this one between Walcott and Dixie Kid was by far the biggest match he ever took part in. The welterweight title was, even at this point, the welterweight title for the gloved boxing already had a little bit of history going back into the 1800s. Patrick Connor is a boxing writer, historian, and co-host of Knuckles and Gloves, a boxing history, bare knuckles, and true crime podcast. He's written about this match and this era of boxing in general. This would have been, I believe, the second time that two black fighters fought for the welterweight title ever. So it would have even just on that basis been very important, apart from the fact that it was a title fight, for sure. For 20 rounds, the fighters duked it out, and based on first-hand accounts, Walcott seemed to have an edge. But in the final seconds of the 20th round, Sullivan bungled the whole thing. The referee's attempted explanation was not helpful whatsoever. And nonetheless, the public outcry, because it seemed, I guess, to the crowd and the newspaper people and the pundits and whatever who were in attendance, that that's not what happened. I'm Stuart Barefoot, and this is Obscure Ball, a sports storytelling podcast. That story is next. Before we get to that, just a little bit of housekeeping. As always, I appreciate any support you can provide. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, family, coworkers, whoever. These stories are meant to be enjoyed by as many people as possible. If you're feeling extra generous, there's a link in the description to make a donation. These stories take time and money to create, and the goal is to keep this show ad-free and free to listen to. If you can't do it or don't want to, don't worry. I know money is tight, but anything helps and is appreciated. Okay, on to the episode. It's chapter two of the Circa 1904 series. It's called The Bad Ref. This era, between that bare knuckle era in the late 1800s and World War I, there was a lot of growth and a lot of development in the sport of boxing. There were also an, a couple of immigration waves that changed boxing right around this time too, and it would continue to change boxing in the coming decades. So I think that this particular era is really interesting and also because we have to rely so much on the newspaper accounts. There wasn't quite that much video yet, and so the video that we do have of some of these fighters from this era is pretty scant, where it's in 
weird frame rate where they look all funky and they're moving around like they're insects or something. So it, it's it's definitely uh, tough to get a good grasp of this era, and I think that's also one of the reasons why it's so intriguing. So much of what Patrick said is why this was a challenging story to research and report on, and why some of the most important details from this event are basically just footnotes. But I tried anyway. In the early days of boxing, record-keeping wasn't all that thorough. In the late 19th century, it was kind of a bare-knuckle brawl beloved by gamblers and outlaws and usually took place in illegal venues. So because of that, there was always kind of a stigma associated with it. There are a lot of moving parts, <laughs> but to try to sum it up, basically, when certain jurisdictions would come after promoters or fighters and they would have to find ways to hold fights, like they'd have to go off to some private estate or something like that, or they'd have to have special trains to catch a ferry over to this little island across the way where they're holding this fight in a makeshift thingy. I mean, it sounds absurd, but they had to do these kinds of things to skirt the law. And when you think about it in the sense that, like, uh, there was a lot of gambling, a lot of money changing hands, and that, that, that wasn't taxed. <laughs> you know, Uncle Sam wants in on that. And when you think about it in those terms, it's like, okay, well, now I understand. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I understand why police would be going after this. I understand why they would then look to regulate this and try to tax it and try to get their their little paws on it rather than, you know, these, these people trying to skirt the law. And so there was a lot of legislation and stuff like that at the state level and on the national level going on as well. But by 1904, boxing had evolved to a more sophisticated sanctioned sport. There were a number of these different laws and legislative uh, happenings that really affected boxing or that boxing affected too. So that was, uh, a lot of these things really went hand in hand. There was a lot of money changing hands and they weren't allowed to, they weren't about to just allow that to, to slide. So boxing was transitioning out of the bare knuckle era and was starting to kind of trim down the amount of rounds that they were allowing fighters to go. The officials were starting to kind of rein in the style a little bit, disallowing dirty tactics. Uh, the previous era, the kind of bare knuckle era and that first transitional period allowed for wrestling, tackling kind of a, a whole bunch of different tactics and inside fighting and what they would now call an MMA dirty boxing, that kind of fighting. Uh, whereas transitioning out of the what they call the London prize ring rules and into the Queensbury, the Marcus of Queensbury rules, which are now the kind of basis for the rules we have now, they disallowed a lot of those wrestling things. So boxing was definitely changing right around the turn of the century, the, the start of the 20th century. It was a sport that was evolving fairly quickly. And for the purposes of you know this show, it was a sport that had recently had a number of black fighters rise to prominence and become champions. It's interesting to read about, uh, and I've read some of what you've written about black fighters at this time. It definitely felt like as far as organized sports went, boxing was a little bit ahead of, of the curve there. Uh, other sports professionally didn't integrate until decades later. Boxing seemed a little bit ahead of its time. Yes, although I would not say for altruistic reasons or anything like that, obviously for monetary purposes. Uh, there's a pretty icky history when it comes to black fighters in boxing, as many people know. 
just about anyone who is familiar with the story of Jack Johnson, for instance, might be familiar with um, battle royales and things like that, where it was it was essentially uh, an extreme form of fighting and exploitation against black people in the late 1800s and I think even well into the 1900s in some places. Uh, and it kind of depended on where you were, what you were doing, but generally they would have a number of black men either blindfolded or whatever in some way uh, impaired or with one arm tied behind their back, just going into a ring and beating each other up. And that was a battle Royale. And it, I mean, obviously it, it, there was no, no way to go, but up from there, unfortunately, but it did uh, it from even some of those ridiculous and awful contests emerged some actually good fighters. And I guess that wouldn't be surprising because that's rough stuff. And that I guess would form, you know, quite, quite a formidable, strong person if anybody could get through something like that. But the point being that that's part of the history of early boxing and some of the early black fighters in boxing it was different in different places, though, obviously. Uh, for instance, Peter Jackson, uh, the original Peter Jackson, had a lot of success fighting in Australia. And that's not to say that, you know, Australia was enlightened or anything per se. It's just that for whatever reason, he was able to form more of a base there in Australia. Anyway, point being, this uh, right around the early 20th century was a very formative time for a lot of black fighters to kind of get in on the more official form of boxing. So in kind of a twisted way, boxing was integrated before most other professional sports. And while it wasn't the most altruistic of dynamics, it paved the way for talented fighters like Barbados Joe Walcott to become one of boxing's premier fighters. Now some quick history on that name Barbados Joe Walcott. Despite being the original Joe Walcott, he was often referred to as Barbados Joe Walcott. Years later, a talented fighter named Arnold Cream idolized Walcott and adopted his name in the ring. He became known as Jersey Joe Walcott because, you know, New Jersey. And our guy for this story was from Barbados and later became known as Barbados Joe Walcott. And he was an interesting character, to put it mildly. When he was 14, he decided he wanted to see the world. So he got a job as a cabin boy on a ship that eventually landed in Boston. He quickly became a skilled amateur fighter while working all kinds of odd jobs. He grew to all of five foot one and developed a reputation as a small but scrappy fighter, willing to go against anyone who'd get in the ring with him, regardless of size. In nearly two decades of professional boxing, Walcott won dozens and dozens of matches and even to this day is regarded as one of the best pound for pound fighters of all time. In December of 1901, he won his first welterweight title when he beat Rube Ferns in five rounds. According to the Toronto Star, he was beating Ferns so badly that the ref had to intervene and just call the whole thing. After the match, even Ferns conceded that Walcott was the best fighter he'd ever faced. Walcott continued to defend his title throughout 1902 and 03, eventually setting up a title fight between him and another black fighter named Aaron Lister Brown, a.k.a. Dixie Kid. And speaking of nicknames, being from Missouri, the name Dixie probably comes from that. At 5'8", he was bigger than Walcott, but had a similar scrappy style of fighting, often challenging and beating larger boxers. Between 1900 and 04, 
he became one of Southern California's best fighters, knocking off some pretty big names as well. So when he challenged Walcott for the welterweight title in 04, it was a pretty big deal. The welterweight title was, even at this point, the welterweight title for the gloved boxing already had a little bit of history going back into the 1800s. And Joe Walcott was the first black welterweight champion. And he was among a kind of wave of early black champions. George Dixon would have been the first one, although he was, I believe, Canadian. And then Joe Gans would have been the first black American lightweight champion. And then Joe Walcott was the welterweight champion. And on top of that, this would have been, I believe, the second time that two black fighters fought for the welterweight title ever. So it would have even just on that basis been very important, apart from the fact that it was a title fight, for sure. Oftentimes in sports, big events that get a ton of hype have a way of disappointing, like Super Bowls most seasons. This was not the case between Walcott and Dixie Kidd. It was seen that both were much in earnest when they got together in the center of the ring in the first round. They fainted for a few moments at long range and then settled down to hard work. Walcott was after his man from the start, but the kid gave as good as he received. He landed two hard lefts to Walcott's body and also did some effective work in the clinches. Walcott was the aggressor in the second round, with some of his most effective blows being a snappy left to the head, which shook up his opponent. Walcott did some leading to the head while the kid played for the body. The kid missed a hard left swing near the end of the round and went down to his knees from the effects of a left to the head. The fifth round was full of fight and showed the kid to better advantage than some of the previous ones. In the sixth, the kid seemed to gain strength and scored with some long swings. The seventh was the kid's best round up to this point. He forced the fight and set his right across Walcott's jaw hard. It made the Boston boxer look serious. Early in the eighth round, the kid tried with his right to the head but missed, and then both felt slugging in earnest. The kid was finally forced to cover up while Walcott tried all he knew to land a blow inside his guard. The kid was a tired boxer when he went to the corner. Walcott regained his cheerfulness in the ninth round. Near the end of the round, the kid surprised him by landing a clean right to the head, but Walcott came back fighting as though the blow had no effect on him. The kid was down for six seconds in the tenth round from a strike to the head, but he was not dazed and fought it out until the bell. Both fought desperately in the 14th round, and the kid went to his knees in a count in one of the hot exchanges. The kid slipped down in his own corner in the 15th round and was helped to his feet by Walcott. The 17th and 18th rounds saw Walcott keep up his efforts to stop the kid, but to no avail. The kid appeared to be tiring rapidly while Walcott was still fresh. The kid slipped down near the middle of the round and Walcott helped him to his feet. He kept up his kidney punches until suddenly referee Sullivan separated the men and declared the kid the victor on what he called a foul blow. The spectators were amazed and could not grasp the importance of this decision for some minutes. Luckily for Sullivan, he escaped before any bodily harm was done to him, though he will remember Walcott's wallop for some time to come. The San Francisco Call April 30th, 1904. The foul that Sullivan called was for a supposed kidney punch, but Walcott had been landing kidney punches all night, so why Sullivan waited until the 20th round is puzzling. In fact, everything about Sullivan's involvement is actually pretty weird. Back in this time, as far as, like, fight negotiations are, are even now kind of a talking point or a, a bit of the pageantry of boxing. And back in this era, the way that people negotiated fights and the way that fights were made was different. 
often fights were negotiated through the press by way of a call-out, almost. Like, I so-and-so issue of blah, 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 we're going to fight, you know, for so-and-so for this much money. Send us a telegram if you accept. <laughs> Which sounds crazy, but that's often how, how fights were dealt with because you couldn't just text whoever it was, manager. You, you, there had to be some other... Uh, often public form of communication. And so part of that negotiation process was that often the fighter with more pull or the fighter with somehow more influence, whether it was local influence, political influence, monetary influence, would get to choose the officials. And actually similar things happen today. You know, fighters are able to say, nope, that guy's not going to be the referee or that person's not going to be a judge. Uh, and so I think it was similarly... Uh, referee Dick Sullivan was nixed from being a referee and then somehow brought back in. And it, it, it's actually the, the fact that that could even happen in this era was there had already been a number of high profile, even recent uh, referee catastrophes. So the fact that it could even happen is, was pretty ludicrous. At this point, we only have two matches on record for Sullivan both of them on the same night, a week before his disastrous match on April 29th. On the 22nd, he officiated two matches at Mechanics Pavilion in San Francisco. Both were preliminary fights before the heavyweight title match where Jack Johnson knocked out Sam McVeigh. The main fight was officiated by a seasoned ref named Eddie Graney, and Sullivan had the early matches. Neither fight appeared to be controversial, both ended with knockouts in the fourth and fifth rounds respectively, and no mention was made of Sullivan in the newspapers. That's all I could find. I'm not a private detective or investigative journalist, so my search pretty much stalled there. But there are some clues that would suggest he might have had a bad reputation in the sport. The most detailed account of these events come from the San Francisco Call article on April 30th. According to that article, Walcott was very opposed to Sullivan calling the match on the grounds that he didn't have enough experience. His first choice would have been Graney, but someone called out that Graney had broken his arm. This wasn't actually true, but with Graney nowhere to be found, Walcott then suggested other names like Jack Welch, Billy Roche, and Harry Corbett. None of these names resonate with very many people alive today, but at the time, it must have meant something. In any case, none of them were available either. And whatever Sullivan knew about Walcott was enough to make him almost boycott the match. He only agreed to fight when the fight manager, a man named Kofroth, promised him that Sullivan would be fair. That turned out not to be the case. Taking nothing away from Dixie Kid because he was taking his beating like a champ, it was pretty obvious that Walcott was winning the match. But in the 20th round, Sullivan pulled the fighters apart, walked up to Dixie Kid, and said, I give it to you on a foul. That's when things deteriorated quickly, and all that chaos erupted. Aside from his comment that night at the match, the only public explanation Sullivan ever gave was to a sports editor named Otto Floto. He was had a very peculiar writing style. He tried extremely hard to coin a lot of phrases, so he would write these absurd kind of almost anachronistic phrases that made no sense and stuff like that. But he wound up interviewing the referee the next day and printed a long quote from the referee that was rambling and absolutely absurd. He started going in on uh, essentially saying that, yeah, I know nobody else saw the foul, but I'm telling you I saw it. 
uh, and then started going in about how dirty Walcott was fighting and that uh, he had even tried to recount some of the conversation between Walcott and Dixie Kid inside, claiming that Walcott had admitted to fouling Dixie Kid and kept telling him, oh, I won't do it again, I won't do it again, said that Dixie Kid had gone to his corner twice and was vomiting from body shots and stuff like that. So, I mean, it, it was actually, it's pretty interesting that it would even be printed because something like that probably would cause a massive uproar in this day and age. But, um, yeah, it, the, it just added to the confusion. The referee's attempted explanation was not helpful whatsoever. And nonetheless, the public outcry, because it seemed, I guess, to the crowd and the newspaper people and the pundits and whatever who were in attendance, that that's not what happened. Sullivan escaped the venue that night, and initially, Dixie Kid was awarded the title and the prize money. Kofroth tried to smooth things over with Walcott and possibly the angry crowd by promising to pay him the difference between the loser's prize money and that of a draw. He reckoned that had Sullivan not intervened, the match would have been a draw anyway. If there was any mystery behind Sullivan's motives, it was pretty quickly put to rest. The welterweight title was discarded and returned to Walcott when it was discovered that Sullivan had placed a bet on Dixie Kid before the match. But that's all we know. Perhaps the weirdest and most frustrating part of this whole saga is simply recorded as a footnote. Dick Sullivan, the man who at the last minute replaced another referee before a major fight, had placed a bet on a fighter in that very fight who few people expected to win? It leaves so much to the imagination. Who he placed a bet with, how he weaseled his way into the ring, and how his actions were even discovered are all a mystery. I, I guess he was just placing bets with a bookie. There weren't any like organized crime ties or anything that we know of. Not to my knowledge, no. And yeah. I don't even know specifically how they found out he was placing bets. It just kind of came out, especially because he, he fled, you know, and it, it's kind of obvious that, you know, uh, when somebody's guilty of something or when somebody has done something and it was, I guess, confirmed later somehow. Dick Sullivan just walked or maybe ran out of the doors of Woodward's pavilion, leaving all kinds of chaos and anger behind them. As far as we know, he never got into trouble or anything like that. Though it was pretty much the end of his career in boxing, there's no record of him working another match for at least five years. We do know that he called a match sometime in 1909 or 10 between Charles Norval and Sailor Trinkle. He then briefly reappeared in 1911, this time in Hawaii for a match between George Slim Gilmore and Jim Howe. I think it would be unfair to speculate too much about Dick Sullivan given how little we actually know about him. But I also think it was pretty unfair what he did to that match. Black fighters in the late 19th and early 20th century had a hard time securing world title matches, as other fighters often avoided them. So, for two black fighters to compete for a world title in 1904 was a pretty significant moment in boxing and American history. It was a really good match that Sullivan tainted. After that, things for Walcott got pretty sad. In October of 1904, he was at a bar and pulled out a revolver to show it off. It fired by mistake, killing his friend Nelson Hall and taking off a few of his own fingers with it. Everyone at the bar encouraged him to flee but he tried to do the right thing and waited for the cops to show up. 
they arrested him and charged him with manslaughter, but a grand jury never brought charges against him. Still, his hand was badly damaged and he didn't fight again until 1906 and eventually lost his welterweight title to Honey Melody. His career lasted until 1911, though he was never quite the same. After he retired, things got even worse. Like a lot of celebrities and athletes of all generations, he lived hard and squandered a lot of his wealth. He ended up working as a janitor at Madison Square Garden. It's easy to imagine him cleaning up after a big boxing match, wondering what else could have been. In 1935, he went looking for work in Hollywood. On his way, he was walking down a street in Dalton, Ohio, when he was hit by a car and died. No one claimed his body at first, so the town just buried him in an unmarked grave. They figured out who it was after his daughter reported him missing. And 20 years later, when he was inducted into the Boxing Ring Hall of Fame, a headstone was placed at his grave that read, Ex-World's Champion Joe Walcott, 1873-1935. through 1935. In 1991, he was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Dixie Kid had an impressive career in his own right. He never won any welterweight titles other than the disputed one. But he did compete in something like 150 bouts and was inducted into the Ring Boxing Hall of Fame in 1975 and the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2002. Sadly, his story arc was not much better than Walcott's. After he retired in 1920, he lived in Europe for a while where he worked as a drummer in an orchestra and eventually ended up in Los Angeles where he worked odd jobs and was pretty much broke. Thanks to injuries from his fighting days, he had to use a cane to get around. Even still, he's known to have stayed interested in boxing, even helping train Jimmy McLaren, a welterweight champion in 1933. Tragically, he was found dead on April 6, 1934. It seems as though he fell out of a boarding house window. Newspapers at the time indicated that suicide might have been the cause, but that was never officially determined. The fight on April 29, 1904, wasn't the first case of gambling and sports colliding, and it certainly wasn't the last. On this very show, I've covered incidents like 1908, when a team doctor from the New York baseball giants tried to bribe an umpire, or 1914 at the Giro d'Italia when a cyclist was offered money to quit. Perhaps most infamously, in 2007, basketball ref Tim Donahue got caught betting on NBA games that he officiated. The FBI got involved and he ended up going to jail. He wrote a book about his ordeal. There's a documentary about it. I mean, it's a whole big thing. And really, there's no reason to believe something like this will never happen again. It's almost like you could say we came full circle, or alternatively, you could say that, you know, perhaps boxing hasn't come as far as we thought. <laughs> there was no circle. Time is a flat circle. But it's like uh, almost as if it's very similar now to how it was then. There are different rules in different states. Uh, different sanctioning bodies also sometimes have different rules. So it really hasn't changed that much in that regard as far as those kind of governing. We just had a, a fight with Canelo Alvarez and Dimitri Bivol where Canelo Alvarez lost and the scores were highly controversial because uh, Canelo Alvarez got more or less dominated but the fight was very close on the scorecards. So once again, we're kind of having to revisit however many years later, 120 almost years later, the potential corruption or just flat ineptitude of boxing officials. 
So perhaps it hasn't come as far as we thought. Obscure Ball is presented by Small League Productions. More episodes are available at ObscureBallPod.com or anywhere they have podcasts. A special thank you to Patrick Connor for help on this episode. Boxing isn't really a sport I know that much about, so his insight was helpful. Olivia Carto narrated the newspaper clipping, and music comes from the Storyblocks library. A full list of sources I used can be found in the show notes. This episode was written, narrated, edited, and produced by me. I'm Stuart Barefoot. This is part two of a three-part series. Coming up in part three... It was a very rowdy game, and I think I used the comparison to a Lower East Side rat fight. John McGraw was one of the proponents. He believed that anything he could do, any trick, anything, whether it was in the rule book or against the rules that he could use to win a game, he would do it. That's coming soonish.